What do you mean you've lost her? The visitor's normally implacable demeanour is quite undone. The man looks agitated, panicked even. The young woman, leaning over the scrying pool, does her best to swallow her annoyance. I mean what I say, Valerian. She was there, perfectly visible, walking through the underpipe tunnels with that mechanical contrivance of hers, and then, out of nowhere, the connection grew distorted and then died. Valerian begins to pace, bawling his fists. Tatters, you had one job! The young woman, known as Tatters, stands from her work. She is smartly, even expensively dressed, a little over five feet tall. She looks young, in her late teens at the oldest, but there's nothing immature in her bearing or self-confidence. Screw you, Valerian. I've done my job and you damn well know it. Do you think this is easy? I've tracked this mark through thick and thin, and if I can't see her now, it's because she can't be seen. Alphonse lounges in a plump leather sofa behind them, the huge, tattooed man watching this exchange with bored indifference. Valerian comes to a halt, his hands on his hips. Standing on the edge of the stage, he looks out over the dusty, faded grandeur of an abandoned opera house, shrouded in gloom, and does his best to calm himself. All right, this is your area of expertise. If she's gone, she's gone. Do you think she's dead? Tatters shakes her head decisively. No, if she was, I'd know it. The way the scrying link faded out like that, I think something's either blocking the connection, or she's moved out of range of my spell. And the range of your spell is? Unlimited on this plane of existence. Valerian sighs. The spider is not going to be happy we've lost one of her pawns, particularly this pawn, and with the stakes this high. Damn it! A voice rings out from the darkened seating in the stalls, soft but perfectly audible. You are quite right, Valerian. I am not happy in the least. This pawn, as you put it, was our last hope to end this matter peaceably. Or at least peaceably for us... With this thread snapped, we are forced down a path I had hoped to avoid. Gather the crew, Alphonse. The time for hiding and proxies is done. We are going to war. Flexing his shoulders, Alphonse rises to his feet, a broad grin spreading across his tattooed face. About fucking time! Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Mina encountered the escaped gladiator Antiope 
and after a brutal battle with machine cultists, persuaded the recalcitrant tiefling to go to the aid of the healer, Cadmus. Now, with war in the underpipes about to erupt, Mina must track down an immense cache of explosives and make it safe before it brings about the end of the city. So, we finally get a sneak peek at the mystery of the visitor, and it turns out all is not well in his world. Spending a night at the opera was not a decision I took. The mythic GM insisted that we go there, and I was forced to comply. Let me explain. Back in the last chapter, in scene 39, where Mina was falling down the side of the great machine, I rolled a random event when asking fate questions. That event was move away from a thread. And the thread that I had to move away from was track down the visitor, with a description of abandoned stalemate. I usually try to work any mythic input into my story, but this one really did leave me stumped. I couldn't think of any way to crowbar this in, and so I chose to ignore it. Sometimes this is the right approach. We are, after all, dealing with a wholly randomised tool, and not everything it comes up with will fit exactly every time. In fact, it is quite remarkable that it fits as frequently as it does. The times a situation like this crops up are very few and far between. Anyhow, I ignored the prompt and got on with my story. And then, in one of those weird pieces of synchronicity that Mythic throws up from time to time, exactly the same thing happened two scenes later. Mina was deep in discussion with Antiope, having taken out the machine cultists, when another random event occurred. And blow me if it wasn't the exact same thing. Move away from a thread, and the thread was tracked down the visitor. This time, the event descriptors were trust intellectual. Now, the chance of this happening is really pretty slim. So slim, in fact, that this was impossible to ignore. Even though the second instance made just as little sense in the narrative context. Mythic was really insisting on this, though, and so I needed to figure out a way to respond. I simply couldn't work out a way to fit this into the current scene, and so I put it to one side to think about, and finish the scene and the episode. And then, Monday's episode of Me, Myself and Die dropped, and it provided me with my answer. Trevor Deval had an interrupt scene in his show which related to an NPC. Now, rather than directly following the guidance in the mythic rules, he cut from his protagonist to the desert island where his NPC was marooned. Now, as I understand the mythic event rulebook, this approach is something you adopt if you roll a remote event. But seeing it applied in this way, in practice, it was instantly obvious that this was the right way to go. Rather than awkwardly trying to push a square peg into a round hole, simply cut away from the protagonist, and in the process, open out the story provide interesting reveals for the audience that the protagonist isn't privy to, and appease the mythic GM. Thanks, Trevor. So, now I knew that I needed to create a scene focused on the visitor. Who was he? Who did he work with? The answer to those questions, and perhaps more, lay outside of D&D. I'd been reading the role-playing game Blades in the Dark, which a friend had pointed out was a great fit for my setting and it seemed obvious that the character and crew generation rules from that game were tailor-made to give me what I needed here. There was even the perfect crew type, Shadows, a secretive bunch focused on espionage and intrigue. 
and so I took each of the Blades in the Dark character archetypes and gave them names. The Visitor was obviously a slide, a manipulative face type. I thought Valerian sounded like a suitable name for him. Then Alphonse Crater Crabtree was a cutter, the muscle of the outfit. I could see him as some sort of backstreet bare-knuckle fighter who's moved on to bigger and badder things. I added a spider, who I imaginatively called Spider, as the mastermind of my gang, and Tatters as the group's spellcaster, along with several others that didn't make it into this scene. Then I tried to figure out the source of their conflict. I figured that with all the visitors seemed to know about Mina, the gang must be magically spying on her, and looking at the details in the scrying spell, I noticed the spell is only effective on the same plane of existence as the caster. Well, given what we know about the vastness of the Hall of the Great Machine in relation to the size of the city, it seemed reasonable to suppose that in entering the Hall, Mina had unwittingly stepped through a portal out of this dimension and into another. Mythic agreed, and so I had my source of conflict. Then, I just had to resolve my event descriptions in the context of this situation. So, now we have a name for the visitor, a couple of new NPCs, and a new series of dynamic events taking place off-screen that Mina will no doubt find coming to bite her if she manages to get out of her current crisis. I'm going to assist her a little on that front. It occurs to me that during her long rest in the jail cell, she should probably have levelled up, so I'll do that now instead. Mina goes up to level 4, gaining 16 hit points and a plus 2 stat boost, which I'm applying to intelligence. That takes her intelligence score to 20, the highest she can go. Okay, time to go back to Mina. Chaos is down to 2. It takes some time, but by following groups of cultists and eavesdropping on conversations, Mina is eventually able to track down the hidden cultist stronghold, the Sanctus Eruptio. This must be it, she mutters to Barbican, adjusting the shoulder strap of the crossbow and tire be discarded. They stand, half hidden, a short distance from a set of broad steps that descend to a massive set of metal bulkhead doors. They are surrounded by squat iron pillars that support a section of the machinery above. A mass of cultists mill about the entrance, some semblance of order being imposed by a number of high priests barking orders. The distant klaxons have ceased, but the sense of urgency and anticipation among the cultists does not seem to have abated. It's going to be tricky approaching this without getting stopped, even with this disguise. The last thing we want to have to do is talk to anyone. There's a sudden pandemonium at the sanctum entrance, and a fresh klaxon, this one close by and deafeningly loud, blares out. The mass of cultists who had been facing outwards, protecting the sanctum, turn almost as one, pressing inwards towards the doors. These swing slowly open, defenders forcing themselves through the gradually widening gap. I don't know what's going on, but this is our chance. Come on, Barbs, it's now or never, Mina whispers, and the pair sprint across the intervening distance, joining the back of the pressing pack unnoticed. Slaughter them! Slaughter all who defile our holy sanctum! A priest yells, and then they're through, sprinting down an echoing steel corridor. Mina doesn't have time to think things through, she just follows the crowd, doing her best to keep up and avoid getting crushed in the stampede. 
The sounds of battle come from up ahead, screams and the clash of steel on steel ring out, weirdly reverberating down the metal passage. They round a corner and see a score of cultists locked in furious battle with pipe runners. The dead of both sides choke the passageway. Hold the doors! The pipe runner yells. Hold them just a few minutes more! Behind him, sparks can be seen coming from a crack between another set of double doors. They're welding the entrance shut, cries a cultist. The main force is inside! Nina's gut tightens. Somehow, the pipe runners have circumvented all the cultist defences and have taken their stronghold from within. Her worst nightmare is realised. The pipe runners have secured the infernal powder. They have their finger on the trigger of the end of Kairos. I gave Mina an investigation check here to find the stronghold, and she blew it. But she only missed by two, and so I used the fail-forward approach that I mentioned back in Chapter 5. I ruled that she succeeded, but with a complication, and then I rolled a random event, which said, Adjourn Victory. I decided that this meant the attack had begun, and Mina was caught up in the defence. Mythic confounded my expectations, though. A series of questions revealed the pipe runners didn't launch a frontal assault on the stronghold, or try something sneaky like gassing the defenders. Instead, they were already inside, leaving the defenders locked out of their own explosives cache. I don't know how they managed it yet, but whether it was some sort of secret passage, or teleportation, or something else, this could be very, very bad news indeed. On a cheerier note, next up, we have something a little bit different and extremely welcome. Listener Stephen Lebeck has written in with a question. He writes, I've been listening to your show and it's absolutely awesome. I have a question that you might answer on the show. How and when do you write the story down? Is it done in small chunks as you think about the story or do you daydream the story while you're rolling the dice? Not until you've got a full scene do you write it all down. Thank you very much for your question, Stephen, and for your kind words. It's a real boost to hear that folks are enjoying the show. The answer to your question, as is so often the case, is it depends. My usual approach is to cover the mechanical side of a scene first, going through all the mythic questions and conflict resolution. The stuff that you see written in the show notes, if you look at those. I tend to do that in my home office, or slash man cave, slash garden shed, because that's where I have my mythic deck set up. And that's also where all my RPG books live. Usually, I'll do the mechanics for one, maybe two scenes, which usually just takes a few minutes, or a bit longer, if I have a combat scene. Then, I move on to the writing. Because I'm writing everything in Google Docs, that writing can be done anywhere, on any device. I wrote the words that you're listening to right now, on my phone, sitting in a park, with my dog by my side, waiting for my wife and kids to buy a pair of shoes. If I'm on a commute, I have a little Bluetooth keyboard for my phone that makes things a little bit quicker, Otherwise, it's on a laptop. I try and set aside chunks of an hour or two, if possible, for writing, because it's good to get into a flow, but I'm not averse to grabbing five or ten minutes here or there if the opportunity arises. With the mechanical skeleton of the scene created and available to me wherever I am, I have all I need to write, wherever and whenever the opportunity arises. That said, I did say it depends, and that's because some scenes don't quite fit this pattern. Sometimes I bounce back and forth between writing a bit of narrative and then consulting the mythic GM, only asking a question when my written story reaches a point where one is required. 
This may be because the scene particularly lends itself to that approach, or just because the mood takes me. Because this approach requires access to the GM emulator, I only tend to do this when I'm at my PC in my shed, though again, there are exceptions. I have a little box and divider cards for the Mythic deck, so it can be portable if needs be. I wrote a lot of Chapter 13 sitting in a sunny cafe with my laptop, Mythic cards and dice spread out in front of me on a big table. Anyway, I hope that answers your question, Stephen, and thanks again for asking it. If anyone listening has any questions they'd like me to answer about anything at all to do with the podcast, please do feel free to write in. You can reach me on Twitter at TheLoneADV, by email at TheLoneADV at gmail.com, on my Podbean site, TheLoneAdventurer.podbean.com, or on my blog, CarlIllustration.wordpress.com. As ever, links are in the show notes. Right, back to the drama. Chaos goes up to three. Let's see if Mina can avert impending catastrophe. Don't let them seal the doors, the senior cultist yell. Attack for the glory of the great machine! Mina is caught up in the press of bodies as the cultists throw themselves at the defending pipe runners. The combat is brutal and ugly. With no room to swing a blade, it is all close-quarter knife work. The scrum is so tight that many of the dead are held standing in place, crushed between an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Mina feels as though her ribs are going to cave and struggles for breath, though she is far enough back in the press not to be in immediate danger of getting stabbed. In the confines of the narrow corridor, the sharp stench of sweat and blood is overpowering. What is that, Brother Cox? That creation is not of the machine's making? grinds her teeth in frustration, knowing that this is her fault. She had debated back and forth with herself the wisdom of keeping Barbican with her rather than hidden in the extra-dimensional box. She had taken a calculated risk, gambling that in the chaos and confusion of battle he would not be noticed or be mistaken for one of the maintenance drones. But there was always a real chance that keeping her protector in plain view would land her in trouble. And now trouble has arrived. Barbican is going to get demolished unless she can think of something quick, and in the circumstances, there is only one option she can think of. With Barbican close at her side, she mutters a series of command words to him, and the barrel-chested automaton bursts into action. He wades through the mass of bodies, grabbing startled cultists and shunting them aside as he reaches the pipe-runners defending the doors. Blue energy crackles from his hands, and in such close quarters there is no escape. One after another, the sadistic tribesmen fall, twitching at his shocking touch, and then he slams into the doors with a hollow metallic boom. He backs up and slams into them again, leaving a huge dent. The cry goes up from the cultists, emboldened at this breakthrough. Whatever this strange mechanical man might be, it seems to be on their side. They press forward with renewed fervour, joining the automaton in his relentless assault upon the doors. With one final charge they burst through, the doors swinging open with a crash and the cultists spilling out onto the suspended walkway that runs the full circumference of a huge circular chamber. Such is their momentum as they smash through the doors that some of the cultists go flailing straight over the handrail beyond and screaming over the edge. 
pipe-runners that had been trying to seal the doors from within recover from the surprise breakthrough and close in with knives drawn. Battle is joined once more from where she stands, held in the struggling crush of bodies, Mina can see more of them coming swarming up the ladders towards them. Despite the desperate conflict, three things give her sudden, irrational hope that victory can be snatched from the jaws of defeat. Firstly, she can see that this is indeed the hiding place of the infernal powder. The floor of this huge space looks to be completely filled with barrels. She has found what she has spent so long looking for. Second, although the pipe-runner forces have somehow accessed this stronghold, their forces are nowhere near as overwhelming as Mina had feared. In fact, they look to be outnumbered. And third, Jukti does not appear to be among the defender's numbers. That fact alone provides her with a rush of relief. She's seen what that old woman can do single-handed, and the fact she is absent gives her hope that the pipe-runners can be overcome. But even as the force of cultists push the pipe-runners back, aided by Mina and Barbican, she feels the chance slipping from her grasp. The battle is tipping in their favour, but too slowly. Every foot advanced takes precious seconds, time they cannot afford to lose, time the enemy can exploit. And through it all, that little dry number cruncher in the back of her mind has kept coolly running the numbers. What she had thought were barrels of the chamber floor are now revealed to be just the topmost barrels of stacks at least five or six barrels high. Her inner accountant comes to the conclusion that the barrels here must number somewhere north of 5,000. If each barrel contains around 100 pounds of powder, that adds up to over 250 tonnes of powder down there. The destructive power of such a quantity of the high explosive is almost beyond her comprehension. And then, with a daring leap and a flare of light, it's over. The pipe-runner, with a hatchet in one hand and a flare in the other, springs from the stairs and out onto the top of the stacks of barrels. He ignites the flare and holds it aloft, sparks raining down around him, with the hatchet poised to smash down into the lid of one of the barrels. And he cries out, his voice echoing around the huge space. Drop your weapons! Drop them now and surrender! For I end this here and now! All it takes is one barrel ignited to set off the rest, and that's the end of the city and the end of your precious machine! Drop your weapons, or it's all over! Oh dear, that's quite the cliffhanger to end things on. That scene started well enough. I asked if the pipe runners managed to seal the doors, and Mythic said no. So far, so good. But that question threw up a random event. PC negative, naturally. The description was inform possessions. My first thought was perhaps someone had seen through her disguise or the skull cap had been dislodged, but I wasn't sure and so I checked. Nope. That wasn't it, Mythic told me, and that's when I remembered I'd forgotten to hide the big shiny robot from the horde of crazy cultists. Oops. I had Mina order Barbican to attack their enemies, and that seemed to do the trick. They broke through, and follow-up questions seemed to suggest that things were going in the right direction. Though an exceptional yes told me that the chamber was absolutely enormous, there was no Chukti, and a description card drawer of the enemy forces gave me threateningly average... That sounded like this was not an overwhelming force we were dealing with. 
but of course it was too good to last. A little unsure of what would happen next, I asked an event question. What were the pipe runners doing? The answer was create a representative. That took a little puzzling out, but my train of logic went like this. One of the pipe runners wanted to negotiate. The only reason they would negotiate is if they were in a position of strength, and the only logical position of strength I could think of was the ultimate in brinksmanship. If the cultists didn't surrender, everyone would die. That's quite the bluff to call. It's at times like this I really wish I had access to Mina's pistol. One of her infuse item abilities is repeating shot. At the end of a long rest, she can turn any weapon with the ammunition property into a magical weapon, gaining plus one to hit and dealing plus one damage. This synergizes perfectly with her level three feature, Battle Ready. That feature allows her to use her intelligence modifier instead of her strength or dexterity modifier when using a magical weapon. And as Mina's intelligence is now 20, that gives her a plus 5 stat bonus to add to her plus 2 proficiency bonus, as well as the plus 1 from repeating shot, giving a total of plus 8 to hit and plus 6 to damage, which of course gets doubled alongside her damage dice. The lowest damage she can now do if she hits with her pistol is 14 hit points. Firearms in this world are pretty rare, because usually they're slow and have limited range and infernal powder is hard to get hold of. But with Mina's magical tinkering, her weapon is transformed into a rapid-firing hand cannon. It's a crying shame that Umajukti has stolen it. Of course, her ability applies to any weapon with the ammunition property, which is why she grabbed Antiope's crossbow. But finding the time and the space to get a long rest, effectively an undisturbed night's sleep in this madhouse, with a war kicking off, that's going to be quite a challenge. With all that said, even if Mina did have access to a magical weapon, it would be quite a gamble to start firing high-powered arcane projectiles at a man standing on top of the mother of all powder cakes. I mentioned that there were perhaps 250 tonnes of infernal powder, some 5,000 barrels in a room around 75 feet in diameter, stacked five high. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that infernal powder has the same explosive yield as gunpowder. In terms of comparison, Guy Fawkes had 36 barrels of gunpowder stashed below the Houses of Parliament. Modern estimates predict that if the gunpowder plot had succeeded, a radius of 130 feet would have been completely levelled, with buildings at least partially destroyed out to a radius of around 360 feet. The explosion that rocked Beirut back in 2020 was estimated to be about 500 tonnes of TNT, a substance with similar explosive power as gunpowder by weight. That is considered to be one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in human history, though that blast was only one-thirtieth of the 15-kiloton explosion that destroyed Hiroshima in 1945. And that explosion, in turn, had only one three-thousandth of the power of the 50-megaton bomb detonated by the Soviet Union in 1961, known as Tsar Bomber, or the King of Bombs. And that explosion, in turn, is utterly dwarfed by the Chicxulub impact that brought about the end of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, which is estimated to have detonated with the force of 100 million megatons. That's 100 million million tons of TNT, or 2,000 trillion barrels. 
consider this in terms of the chamber where Mina now stands, where a total of 5,000 three-foot-tall barrels are currently stacked five high, to a height of 15 feet. In order to reproduce the explosive potential of the Chicxulub impact, those barrels would need to reach a height of 1.1 billion miles, which is a bit further than the distance from the Sun to Saturn's orbit. Which just goes to show, no matter how bad things look for Mina, they could always be worse. It should come as no surprise that the chaos factor goes up to four. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.